Part five of Bizarre by Lawton McCall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Minims. The Night of the Fleece. Wimley was the mildest male living. Consequently, when Molly said in her most decisive tone, Nonsense! I want to hear of your going back tonight before you've even seen our new tennis court, he realized that he would have to stay over the weekend. Not that he didn't want to, in one way, for he liked Molly and admired the way she bossed the servants and ran the house for her mother. Then, too, the weather, which seemed to be growing hotter every minute, would be far more endurable out here in Avondale Manor than in the city. What troubled him was the fact that he had not brought a handbag. I'll lend you some of Father's things, she went on. It'll be no bother at all. When the evening drew to a close and bedward migration began, he was shown to the guest room. I hope you will find everything all right, said his hostess as she bid him good night. He replied that he was sure he would. Then he opened the door, and the heat met him like a solid wall. Throwing off his coat, he went to the two windows to see if they could really be open. Yes, they were, but the thick fly-screening kept out any air that might have desired to enter. He glanced at the bed. There was something blue and white lying folded on it. As he drew nearer, he could see that this something was fuzzy. Picking it up, he discovered it to be a pair of woolen pajamas. Horrors. Not even in the bitterest winter could his skin endure the feel of wool. He wondered if Molly's father ever really wore such things. Perhaps his wife had given them to him, and perhaps that was why the old gentleman was staying so long in South America. Midnight found Wimley still looking the pajamas squarely in the fuzz. Awful thought was in his mind. What would Molly and her mother think of him if they found them unrumpled and therefore unused? He slid one leg into the proper section. The flannel drew like a mild mustard plaster, then pulled on the other. He was engulfed. A hippopotamus would have felt comfortable in them at the North Pole. He drew the fuzzy cord several feet before he tied it, then put on the ulster. It had a huge pocket, capable of containing a tablecloth, that hung over the spot where his appendix would have been if he had been internally left-handed. Noting that his feet disappeared, he turned up the bottoms of the trousers four times, so that each ankle was neatly encircled with a donut-shaped buffer. Then, after throwing back all the covers, he snapped out the light and got into bed. It had one of those patent soft mattresses that, sinking in, hold the body in bas relief. He rolled and floundered on the thing, but at every flounder he sank deeper. It was a quicksand of a bed. He recalled Victor Hugo's account of the unfortunate traveller who perished in just such a way, how first his feet disappeared, then his knees, then his waist, till at last there was nothing but a waving hand, and then that went. He was just preparing to wave when his attention was distracted by the realisation that his whole body was tingling with the heat. He seized the jacket by the middle button and pumped it in and out, trying to pump in some cool air. There was none to pump. Gasping for breath, he crawled to the window. Still no air. He decided to remove the fly-screening. There was a little groove in the side of the frame where you were supposed to put in your fingers and pull. He put in his fingers and pulled. Nothing happened. Then he did so again, considerably harder, and the screen went sailing out the window. He leaned out just in time to see it crash upon a row of potted plants. His heart stood still. Anyone heard the noise? He listened for several minutes, agonizing suspense. 
Here at the window it was a little cooler than in the bed. Why not emulate the Japanese and sleep on the floor? Splendid. Normal squashy clinging mattress for him. Fetching a pillow, he stretched out in true oriental style. Quite right, the floor did not sink or yield in any manner. It even gave prominence to certain bony places which the bed had kindly overlooked. Resisting the thick woolen anklets complicated the disposal of his lower limbs. Finally, however, a gentle sleep slid into his soul. But about an hour later, the slippery thing slid out again at the mere announcement by a rooster that dawn had arrived. Other roosters, wishing to remove all doubts on the subject, repeated with emphasis that Jaius Day was at hand. But a large fly buzzed into the window to say good morning. It perched sociably on his left temple, and began rubbing its two front legs together in a jovial manner. But Wimley was in no mood for holding a levy. He brushed the fly away. It executed a boomerang trajectory, led again on the same spot, and began rubbing its legs as before. He brushed it away again. It perched again in exactly the same spot. He was indignant. Was he to be at the mercy of a miserable little fly? It seemed he was. He got up and paced the floor. Happening to catch a glimpse of his face in the mirror, he beheld a flourishing crop of black bristles. His whiskers stood ready to be harvested, and his faithful razor was fifty miles away. Panic seized him. He thought of the window-screen catastrophe. The quicksand bed. The hard floor. His heart sank. He thought of a day in those whiskers, another night in those pajamas, and then tomorrow's whiskers. He felt that instant flight was the only thing possible. Hastily, he pulled on his clothes, which felt sticky and mouldy, and spoke eloquently of yesterday's dust and heat. Then he opened the door and peered out into the hall. No one was in sight, but other doors were open, and out one of these came a rumbling snore. Could it be Margaret's? This ominous sound was more than he could bear. He retreated. Backing home once more, he tiptoed over to the screenless window to see what his chances would be in that quarter. Ah, there, close by, was a vine-covered trellis that reached down to the ground. With palpitating heart, he swung himself over to it. It oscillated slightly as it received his weight. The thorny crimson rambler was decidedly cloying. He no sooner succeeded in detaching himself from one twig than two more just like it whipped out and hooked it. He reached down with his right foot. Down, down where the devil was that next cross piece. At last he found it, together with about a dozen new thorns. But when he started to bring down his left foot, the twigs from above insisted on escorting him to the lower perch, so that he was now in the clutches of thorns of both levels. His coattails had soared to the middle of his back, and his side pockets were nestling under his armpits. The air was full of perfume and profanity. All at once there was a crack and a tear, and something gave way. The next instant he and the vine were descending rapidly in each other's embrace. A clump of lofty hollyhocks suffered martyrdom in breaking his fall. They gave their sap to save him and complete the ruin of his clothes. Disentangling himself from the wreckage, he dashed off down the nearest path under arbors and pergolas, around sundials and summer-houses, past marble seats with mottoes that spoke of rest, till, just as he thought he had reached the edge of the labyrinth, he found himself at the end of a blind alley. In front of him was a dribbling fountain, a vapid-faced female clad in dew and idiotically pouring water out of a parlor on it. On the pedestal was carved. Garden was a loathsome spot, God wot. A brown measuring worm was measuring the lady for garments she needed but would never wear, and water dribbled and dribbled. 
but Wimley wasn't thirsty. Striding over a row of conch shells and broad jumping a pot of geraniums, he made for a six-foot hedge that appeared to be the boundary of the garden. A desperate swing, followed by a frantic scramble, brought him to the top of it. He wriggled there like a bareback rider in a bucking pocket. A ping sounded a tense racket close beside him. Lifting his face from the foliage, he beheld Mum enjoying an early morning game with her thirteen-year-old brother. "'My advantage!' she called as she raised her racket to serve. Catching an astonished look on the boy's face, she stopped short and glanced at the hedge. "'A tramp!' she exclaimed, moving toward the spot. The would-be fugitive struggled to tumble back on the other side. His head and one shoulder disappeared from view. "'Grab him! Don't let him get away!' she cried excitedly. The boy did so, seizing one foot, while she seized the other. Then from the depths of the foliage came a voice as shy and as plaintive as that of the hermit thrush, murmuring, "'It's Wimley!' Black Jitney, the autobiography of a ford, twentieth-century revision of Black Beauty. The first thing I can remember was being shoveled out of a great incubator called a factory along with several hundred brothers and sisters. All the men in that factory wore diamond shirt studs. While I was wondering at this, an old motor truck named Mercury said to me, with feeling, Ah, if all the workmen in the world could be as well off as the ones here, there would be no more poverty, and no people so poor as have to ride in fords. I was loaded on a freight car and carried many, many miles. The car jolted so terribly that I should have gone all to pieces had I not been built for jarring. None of the train crew showed me any sympathy. They were wicked men, and used language that frequently sent a tinkle of shame to my mudguards. I did not then know, as I do now, that the purest-minded automobile has to endure all its life words and tones of the most shocking description. My first master was a careful and conscientious man. He had a large garage full of Fords, and he always kept a sharp eye on the door to make sure that nobody who walked out carried off one of us. One day a man came in with a twenty-dollar bill that he wanted changed. Sorry said my master, but all I have in my cash drawer is two dollars and sixty-nine cents. I'll have to give you the rest in fords. Whereupon he handed him me and one of my brothers and three extra tires, which just made up the amount. This new master, whose name was Mr. Pius, was very good and humane. He drove me with a gentle foot, and he would say to his children, Be kind to Black Jitney, never scratch him or bend him. The chubby little fellows grew so fond of me that before long they would trot sturdily beside me. Their mother, however, was a cold, imperious woman. She cared nothing for the feelings of Ford. She would drive me at Hartley's pace till my radiator was parched with thirst, and my gears fairly cried out for oil. Speed was her one desire, and naturally I could not satisfy her. Even when I ran so fast that the effort made me shake from top to tires, and I was in danger of losing my lamps, she would call me Ice Wagon and Rattle Trap and other cruel names, and refer unkindly to the fact that she could count the palings of the fences that we passed. Finally, this hard-hearted woman prevailed upon her husband to sell me and buy a big sixteen-cylinder Pope Gregory. This car, as I afterward learned, was so vicious that the first time she took it out for an airing, desalted three helpless chickens and a pig. My next master was a young man, whose private life was such as no well-brought-up automobile could have approved of. Every evening, after he had kept me in the garage all day long, fuming with impatience and spilled gasoline, he would make me carry him for hours and hours with some young woman who ought to have known better. What sights and sounds I had to endure! I would always kept the strictest decorum. 
It was the while his deplorable conduct began to affect me. I found myself thinking thoughts which I had never permitted to enter my mind before, and looking with more interest than I should at seductive satin-trimmed limousines. My morality was in danger of skipping. One evening, while my master was dining with a young woman at a roadside inn, I was left to wait in the adjoining gallery. But I was not alone, for close beside me stood a little French Lardelais, the most morally alluring car I had ever seen. Her lines were exquisitely shifted. She was a goddess on wheels. Good evening, she sparked enticingly. Now to the car that stood next to me at the country club last Thursday night. There was a daredevil gleam in her lamps which set my carburetor a sputter. Yes, I answered infatuated. I knew you even though you tried to hide your name. Wasn't it lovely, just us two in the moonlight, touching the tires? A quiver ran through me. I knew that unless I could back out in a hurry, I was lost. I tried hastily to reverse. She hadn't completely short-circuited. Heaven knows what might have happened had not my master entered at that moment and saved me. Instant he laid hold of my crank, I gave vent to my pent-up emotions in a way that nearly burst my muffler, and when he pressed down the pedal I fairly leaped to the door in flight. As it was, I was seething with nervousness. My motor throbbed so violently that I could hardly hold still while the young woman climbed into her seat. Off we sped down a dark and narrow road. I had no control over myself, and neither did the people I was carrying seem to have control over me or over themselves. Well, at once my left fore-tire exploded violently, veering me aside into a milepost. My master and the young woman landed in a clump of bushes, but I was maimed for life. Bad example and bad association had ruined me. Many an innocent, unsophisticated car is thus driven to destruction, or because its owner fails to live up to his moral responsibility. I lay there all the rest of the night while my gasoline ebbed away, drop by drop. In the morning, some men came out from the city and dragged me in. They performed a most painful operation on me, amputating various shattered members and grafting on several feet of tin. Then, before I was really convalescent, I was sold to a new master. This person was a harsh-speaking, unfeeling man who cared for nothing but money. He drove up and down the streets all day, inviting people to get in and ride. And when they did get in, he forced each one of them to surrender a nickel very cruel to me. Instead of showing any consideration for my broken health, he would say openly, Well, I'll get what use I can out of this one, and then buy another. Not once did he ever throw a blanket over my head in cold weather, and steady my slipping wheels with chains. He was so penurious that whenever he drove me to a crowded street, he would shut up my gasoline and make me run on what I could breathe in from the exhausts of other cars. Wretched indeed is the old age of an automobile, bereft of the beauty it had when it was a new model. It declines into squalid neglect. No amount of painting and enamelling can restore its youthful bloom. One day this master was driving me through an amusement park when I broke down completely. He got out and prodded me brutally in the magneto. I had not the strength to buck. He grew very angry and the people in a tunnel demanded their money back. A crowd of idlers gathered to witness my humiliation. Becoming purple in the face, my master nearly twisted my crank off. He heaped upon me the most insulting and unjust imprecations. 
as though it were my fault that my health was gone, even making distressing insinuations as to my ancestry. Words failed him. He fell to belaboring me with a hammer and a monkey wrench. The spectators looked on with indifference. Some of them even urged him maliciously to the attack. I'll sell the thing for fifty cents, he exclaimed with a shocking oath. Suddenly an elderly, kindly-faced man pushed his way forward to the crowd. I'd give you that for it, he said. Only stop battering it. My master left off hitting me. He looked surlily at the speaker and then at the crowd. You can have it, he said beneath his teeth. Hot tears of gratitude dropped from my cylinders as my deliverer pushed me to his nearby home. From that moment to this, I have never known anything but happiness. My dear old master is a retired gas fitter, his hobby is landscape gardening. Relieving me of my tired wheels, he has pastured me in the center of his front yard and planted me full of geraniums. I am lovingly taken care of. My kind master waters me regularly and curries me with a trap. My working days are over. But what makes me happiest is the knowledge that I can never be sold. Light Breakfast Henry, dear said Mrs. Brush, gently, without raising her pretty head from the pillow. "'It's nearly half-past eight. "'What?' exclaimed her husband, sitting up vehemently and staring at the clock. "'Where is Maria? She's supposed to be here. By seven, isn't she?' "'Perhaps she didn't come today.' "'That good-for-nothing darky. I'll go and investigate.' Plunging energetically into his bathrobe and slippers, he sallied forth on the tour of the apartment. No Maria sweeping in the hall. No Maria straightening up the living room or library. No Maria dusting in the dining room. No Maria preparing breakfast in the kitchen. How provoking, sighed Mrs. Brush. Provoking? I call it outrageous. Yes, I'm sorry, dear, that this will make you late to your office. Oh, I'm not bothered about that, for I've just put through some new efficiency systems which enable me to accomplish a tremendous amount of work in a very short time. What I can stand is having that darky impose on us. Dearest, maybe she's sick. And she could have sent us word by telephone. No, she's taking advantage of the fact that you are young and inexperienced. She'll be sorry for it. I'll discharge her myself. Now, please don't get excited, dear. If you discharged her, it might be days and days before we could get another. That wouldn't make any difference. We'd simply take the meals out. Except breakfast, of course. I'd get that. You? Yes, we'll start this morning, if you'll attend to the dusting. Later in the day, I mean, I'll bring you your coffee before you get up, just as you're used to having it. But, Henry... It won't be any trouble at all. Nothing is, no matter how unfamiliar it may be to you, if you go at it intelligently, scientifically. When Mr. Brush was obsessed with an idea, it was useless to oppose him. The best policy was to let it take its course. As I often told you, he continued, housekeeping could be greatly simplified if you women would only... Seeing that he was about to launch into a homily on efficiency, such as she had heard him deliver at least twenty times in the three months she had been married to him, she said, If you're going to get breakfast, then you'd better hurry and take your bath. That's so, he admitted. Shuffling briskly to the bathroom, he was soon foaming at the mouth with toothpaste. There was a loud buzzing sound from the direction of the kitchen. Henry, called Mrs. Brush, there goes the dumb waiter. Shall I answer it? No, I'll ho, he replied pastily out the corner of his mouth. Still busily agitating his toothbrush so as not to waste any time, he paddled to the dumbwaiter and called, Hello, what's your Garbage, replied a gruff voice. 
a rattling of ropes announced that the car was on its way. Mr. Brush opened the sanitary garbage closet and, screwing up his face and toothbrush, seized something that was mighty unlike a rose. He held the pail out at one arm's length as he carried it to the dumbwaiter. Buzz, buzz, buzz went the buzzer. Ah! gurgled Mr. Brush, nervously swallowing a generous amount of toothpaste. Garbage! repeated the voice. Mr. Brush looked helplessly at the can on the dumbwaiter and then at his incapacitated hands. Put your garbage on! roared the voice. Mr. Brush sputtered then, extracting the toothbrush with the fourth and fifth knuckles of his left hand. He shouted back indignantly, Hey, Eeg! Then why didn't you say so? And down went the dumb waiter with a jerk. Mr. Brush returned to the bathroom. As he was in the midst of shaving, the buzzer sounded again. This time he was on the alert and ready for any argument. Leaving his razor, but not his lather, he hurried back to the kitchen in a combative mood. What do you want? he yelled defiantly as he opened the door of the dumb waiter. There was no answer, but facing him on the shelf of the car stood his empty pail, silent, stolid, and different to his bravado. He snatched it off and returned to his ablutions. On account of the extreme lateness of the hour, he decided to finish off with a quick shower bath. First hot and then cold. Just as he removed his last garment, the buzzer sounded again. Ah, go ahead and bath, he said between his teeth. As he stepped into the hot downpour, the doorbell rang. Whoever that is can wait, but apparently the person in question had no desire to do so. The bell sounded again and again. To complete the symphony, the telephone chimed in with its merry tune. Gwendolen, called Mr. Brush, distractedly amid the roar of waters. But she, having fallen into a pleasant doze while waiting for her breakfast, did not hear him. The bells and buzzer had by this time settled into a sustained chord like that of a whistle's at New Year's. Bounding out of the tub to the mat, Mr. Brush wrapped his form, which still glistened with pearly drops in his bathrobe and slipped slapped frigidly down the hall hello he cried snatching off the telephone receiver no this is not schmidtberger the butcher then he darted to the front door opening it he found the postman waiting with a letter two cents due please the buzzer continued its heavy droning and the telephone started up again two cents two cents repeated mr brush in befuddlement the postman stared Two cents, yes, two cents, repeated Mr. Brush, groping immodestly for pockets where there were none. You said that before. Oh, excuse me, I'll get it right out. Now, where did I put that purse? Let me think. But thinking in the neighborhood of that telephone was an impossibility. You have to quiet it. So, clapping the receiver to his ear, he protested, Hello, hello. Will you kindly give me Schmidtberger's butcher shop? Good grief, he exclaimed, letting the receiver fall. It swung by its tail pendulum-wise, barking infuriated clicks. Mr. Brush staggered in the bedroom. With reeling brain, he ransacked all his chiffonnier drawers for the purse, which was lying in plain view on top. By the time he discovered it and started back to the door, the buzzer in the kitchen was having delirium tremens. Floundering to the spot, he gasped, What do you want? Ice! was the husky reply. All right, I'll send it down. No, I mean you send it up. As the dumb waiter rose, the temperature fell, and Mr. Brush soon found himself in the presence of a beautiful blue bird. Chattering teeth, he reached forward and drew it to him. The door of the dumb waiter closed automatically, and was left alone in the kitchen with the iceberg in his arms. How to open the iceberg was a problem. After attempting unsuccessfully to cajole the cat by fondling it with the corner of the berg, he tried nudging it with his elbow. It would not take the hint. Indeed, it refused utterly to move until he got down on his knees before it and rubbed it with his shoulder. Finally, however, the door opened, disclosing a rival berg, attended by a throng of bottles, siphons, and buttercrocks. 
a cold inhospitable crowd they were resenting any intrusion thus rebuffed mr brushwood felt as though he were being frozen and cauterized at the same time deposited the brogue upon the cover of the wash-tubs it coasted forward threatening an avalanche clutching it at the brink he paused and wondered what he would do next the doorbell saved him from the trouble of deciding he had entirely forgotten the postman setting the burg upon a chair he scurried out and offered him a dollar bill chattering apologies for the delay haven't you anything smaller asked the postman impatiently no i don't think so then why did you keep me here all this time i'll have to come back later he started off stop wait a moment I i'd rather make you a present of the ninety-eight cents oh glory that'll have to be gone through it all over again Discouraged and shivering, he leaned against the side of the doorway, and so doing his eye fell upon a collection of objects that he had been deposited in front of the sill. A morning newspaper, a bottle of milk, one of cream, and a bag containing a long loaf of bread. He stooped over and gathered them up carefully one by one. Just as he had stowed away the newspaper under one arm and gripped the bag with the left hand and the two bottles with his right, the chilliness in him culminated in a sneeze, and everything fell both bottles smashed landing just on the sill they distributed their contents impartially outside and inside finding that the proportion of the flood that the bread and the newspaper were able to sop up was small well they did what they could mr brush hastily procured a bucket and rag from the kitchen where the ice was indulging in a flood of its own and set to work mopping as he sprawled out into the hallway gingerly squeezing out ragpills of cream and broken glass the door opposite was open and a handsome woman appeared attired in fashionable street dress she looked him straight in the eye mr brush clasped his bathrobe to him made a frenzied recall slammed the door and collapsed into a pool of milk henry dear is breakfast nearly ready called his loving wife enraged and dripping he leaped up with sudden strength and started for the bedroom sputtering incoherent expostulations as he went at that moment there was heard the sound of a latch-key and a grinning black face appeared good morning sir something seems to be spilt here fetching a large cloth she set to work with easy dexterity mr brush fascinated watched the lake disappear you best get dressed sir i'll have your breakfast ready in a couple of minutes thank heaven you're here maria he said fervently i was almost afraid you weren't coming the man opposite mildred congratulated herself on having conquered her timidity she had come all the way downtown by herself and had looked through several stores until she found just the curtain she wanted now ready to return home she got on the bus as calmly as though she had been a new yorker and a married woman all her life it being the rush hour of the afternoon the conveyance was quite crowded mildred thought at first that she would have to sit on the backward-facing bench up front which she disliked but luckily she found a place on one of the seats opposite it a moment later even the less desirable bench was occupied the person who took the place on it directly facing her was a tall dark man of about forty with piercing black eyes and an aquiline nose mildred kept encountering his glance there was something about it that disturbed her she flushed a little his face seemed vaguely uncomfortably familiar where had she seen him before she was sure he wasn't anyone who had waited on her in a shop nor any of the tradesmen who came to the door of her apartment he looked too much the man of the world for that neither was he one of the few friends for her husband whom she had had a chance to meet she could not place him 
happiness and the absorption that goes with it made her oblivious of outside things. Whoever he was, his glances rendered her more and more ill at ease. She looked out of the window. She looked up at the advertisements. She looked down at her lap. No use. She could feel his gaze. In vain did she reason with herself that he was not staring at her intentionally, but was merely directing his eyes straight ahead of him, as anyone might do. No, not even the protecting presence of the other passengers could reassure her. She felt almost as though she and the hawk-like stranger were alone in the conveyance. Several times she thought of getting out and taking another bus, but the evening was growing dark, and she might have to wait a long while in a part of town she knew nothing about, and suppose he should get up after her. Blocks seemed hours apart, the halts had cons and tumble, passengers got out in twos and threes. He stayed, looking down at her hands, which nervously fingered the chain of a reticule. Mildred hoped and prayed he would go, but he did not. The people who had shared the bench with him had moved to forward-facing seats as soon as any were vacant. He remained where he was. It seemed she had seen that face somewhere, behind her, following her. This recollection threw her into such a fit of trembling that she let fall her handkerchief. Before she could recover it, he bent forward with a quick swooping motion, seized it in his long fingers, and held it out to her. She took it, trembling, hardly able to murmur. Thank you. He appeared about to speak. Mildred rose in terror and retreated hastily to a place several seats back across the aisle. What would he do? Would he follow her? Were his eyes still fixed upon her, she dared not look. But a reflection in the window-pane increased her fears. Street after street went by. The last other passenger got off. Still he stayed. Mildred's furtive observations by the reflecting window-pane never found him looking out to ascertain what part of town it was. Gradually she was forced to the sickening conviction that he was watching, not for any particular street, but to see where she would get up. As her corner approached, she rang the bell. He rose, she moved quickly to the door. He followed her, smiling, I presume. As she stepped down from the platform, her knees were so weak that she almost fell, her heart pounding. Instead of running as her terror prompted her to, she could with difficulty maintain a panting walk. The man followed, not hurrying, but relentlessly, like an animal that is sure of its prey. When she entered the doorway of the apartment house, she was barely ten yards behind her. She knew he would turn in, also he did. Only she could get into the elevator and escape before he arrived. The car was at one of the upper floors. She rang desperately until it appeared. The instant the iron door stood back, she flung herself in, gasping, Quick! Take me up! Quickly! Yes, miss, replied the startled but drowsy elevator boy as the tall form passed in after her. Mildred shrank into a corner, quivering. Fourth floor, announced the boy. She sprang out, and as she staggered totteringly down the dim corridor, she heard the man's step out of the car. Her latchkey, her latchkey, she fumbled frantically in her handbag, then groped for the lock. The man drew nearer. She was helpless, cornered at the end of a dark hallway. Almost hysterical, she let the key fall and closed her eyes. That moment the door opposite was unlocked briskly, and a lost a young voice inside yelled, Hello, Papa! Lucy, the literary agent I know you will agree with me, said Lucy, that these stories by Perth there are quite remarkable, quite the most distinctive thing of the kind that you've done in years, and that your readers will like them immensely. Etheridge, the editor, said nothing. It was unwise to contradict her, for all the personal touch literary agents, Lucy was the personal touchiest. 
So he let her run on and on, trusting that eventually she would run down. Also, she wasn't bad-looking, aggressively. You've read them? she queried suddenly. Why, certainly, he lied, glancing with studied casualness at the reader's report slip attached to the blue manuscript cover. Etheridge never read anything he could possibly avoid reading. He was one of those successful editors who edit by belonging to the best clubs and attending the right teas. And peruse their manuscripts was not particularly in line. The report slip said, Costume Stories of Holland, the 17th century, only moderately well done, not suitable for this magazine. Who is this door person, anyhow? asked Etheridge defensively. You mean to say you haven't heard of him? Why, my dear Mr. Etheridge, Durer is a man of independent means, lives on his estate down in Maryland, and writes stories between fox hunts, enormously gifted. She felt to add, however, that Durer had offered to let her keep any money she received for the stories, providing she could get them printed. Resting her white elbows on Etheridge's desk and eyeing him with calculating coyness, Lucy knew that he had not read the story. As she would make him wonder if she knew he hadn't. What do you yourself honestly think of them, Mr. Etheridge? Candidly, now, you are always so delightfully frank with me, Mr. Etheridge. That's why it's such a pleasure to deal with you. How did they strike you? Really, Miss Leach, I don't see how in our magazine we could possibly... Now, Mr. Etheridge, she held up a reproving finger, laughing roguishly, but what's the use of our trying to discuss imaginative literature here in your busy office with the telephone ringing every moment, or threatening to ring, and your discouragingly pretty blonde secretary, the minx, popping in continually to see if we're behaving? Etheridge smiled complacently, wiping over. I tell you what, let's have supper in my studio this evening continued lucy it'll be so much more satisfactory to discuss things sensibly without interruption so he did and they did at breakfast it was finally decided that the series by perth dewar should consist of ten stories including four still to be written etheridge salved his conscience by resolving secretly that they should all be published in the back of the book in due course of time the first story appeared contained a mean reference to the Knights of Pythias, or Mormonism, or former Vice-President of the United States, or something for which reason the issue containing it was suppressed. Whereupon the buried issue became a living issue. The intelligentsia rushed to the rescue with highbrow hue and cry. Brown Robbins was circulated. Newspaper columnists got sarcastic. Liberal cliques chitted. Perth Dewar became suddenly significant. The issue containing the second story was sold out the day it appeared. By the time the third one was out, Professor Lion Welp's Yale proved in an article in the Sunday Times that Dewar's attitude toward women was like Turgenev's, and Professor Brando Methuselah of Columbia discovered he had cadences. Sinclair Lewis inserted a mention of him in the 49th edition of Babbitt. Nine British novelists hurried over to lecture on him. And Etheridge, he was made acknowledgment of his peerless editorial acumen that could discern true genius at a glance, the directors of the magazine doubled his salary and gave him a bonus to keep him from being coaxed away by the Saturday evening pictorial. And Lucy? Etheridge married her to keep her quiet. The Creeping Fingers Mrs. Waffin's figure resembled that of the punch-bowl behind which she was standing. It was broad and squat, with a slight tapering at the base, and her mind was like the punch. Swedish and 
characterless with scrappy rinds of things floating round in it. Each guest who presented a cup received the same dipperful and the same set of remarks. Good evening. I am so glad you could come. I just love hearing ghost stories, don't you? See that log over there? She pointed to a huge grey hulk that lay at the side of the open fireplace. That's real driftwood, and it ought to give just the right kind of light. I found it myself on the beach, and had the gardener bring it home in a wheelbarrow. Look, it's all honeycombed with age. A tall, serious-looking young man stepped forward and extended his glass. He knew that this was the way to please her, and she was the woman who he hoped and feared would be his mother-in-law. She beamed. Do you have another, Mr. Carson? He did, for he was in a desperate mood. He was to leave for the city on the early morning train, and this evening would be his last chance to propose to Polly for several months. Somehow, despite his best efforts, the psychological moment never arrived. Just then Polly sailed into the room, fresh and rosy, in a flutter of white muslin. He put down the glass and hurried over to her. Good evening, Polly, he said in an ardent undertone. Couldn't you slip away from this crowd and take a stroll on the beach? No, George, I'm hostess tonight. She shook her head, including some airy little girls, which seemed to make light of her refusal. We're all to gather around the hearth and listen to the stories. Then she added teasingly, Besides, it's in your honor that Mother is giving this party. Yeah, yes, she's very kind, I'm sure, he said awkwardly. Think of all the trouble she's taken over that log. Carson faced her with square jaw. Listen to me, Polly. There is something serious I want to talk to you about. Before I leave, I... Polly, called Mrs. Watson, isn't it time to begin? Perhaps it is, she answered innocently. What do you think, George? I think the storytelling might as well begin at once, he said stiffly. A few minutes later, all lights were turned out. A score of young people had set themselves about the room in comfortable attitudes. Some on chairs and sofas, some on cushions on the floor, while in the midst of them sat the narrator, a girl of eighteen, who affected a deep morbidity. Gazing into the fire, she began to tell as though she were in a trance. Carson sulkily picked his way after Polly toward a seat beside the hearth. Just as he was reaching it, he tripped over something bulky. "'Why, that's my log!' exclaimed Mrs. Waffen from the back of the room. "'Dear, dear, why hasn't anyone put it on the fire?' The story waited while Mrs. Waffen scurried forward and personally supervised the placing of the log upon the andirons, and then sat down beside the hearth opposite Polly. "'Do go on,' cried several voices. "'You stopped in the most exciting part.' The narrator, looking daggers at Mrs. Waffen, paused long enough to show that she didn't have to go on unless she wanted to, and then resumed her tale. Suddenly, as he lay there in the haunted room on the very bed where the old man had been murdered, he felt an invisible hand on the bedclothes. Mrs. Waffen shuddered, and a large black ant peered out of a hole in the log to see what was going on. Then he felt the second hand more terrifying than the first. Holding his homes in flames, the ant rushed back indoors to spread the alarm. Along the highways of the interior he sped, a second Paul Revere, rousing the sleeping insects of which there were many. No! groaned Mrs. Waffen. The exodus of Paul's friends proceeded in oddly fashion. Larvae and eggs first was their order. Carrying the infants upon their backs, they filed out of the subway openings in steady processions. The hands clutched the covers just above his feet. Fear paralyzed him so that he could neither move nor cry out. Party refugees applied to Mrs. Waffen for shelter. She was so absorbed in the story that she did not see them. Then the fingers began to creep up and up and up. His flesh tingled with horror. Mrs. Waffen quivered like an aspen leaf. She breathed hard, her eyes nearly popping. Other people began to feel creepy. 
They clutched his knee, and Mrs. Waffen uttered a piercing shriek and clasped her knee with both hands. She was invaded. Then Polly screamed, and Carson began to slap himself in various parts of his anatomy. There was a general panic. Girls squealed, and clambering frantically upon chairs, shook out their lifted skirts. Young men stamped about wildly, mashing ants and people's toes in equal numbers. Mrs. Waffen, tormented from head to foot, galloped in circles, moaning, Oh, mercy! Oh, mercy! Save me, George! cried Polly, clinging to his arms. Yes, darling, he answered fervently. If the ants had been raging bulls, he would have saved her from them. But they were ants, and their ways were devious. He hesitated, slapping himself thoughtfully. Turn on the lights, yelled someone. No, don't, screamed half a dozen shrill voices. Save me, repeated Polly distractedly. I can't stand this any longer, I'll perish. Struck with a swift inspiration, he caught her up in his arms and started for the door. She made no resistance. Out of the room he carried her, then through the front hall and down the front steps. Halfway down the walk, she asked him, Where are you taking me? To the ocean. Why, you clever boy! People sitting on the verandas of neighboring cottages saw in the moonlight a sight that electrified them with horror. A powerful-looking maniac, with a helpless woman in his arms, strode across the beach and began to wade out into the water. Hoping to save her, they ran to the shore and put out in boats and canoes. Oh, sighed the victim blissfully as Carson let her down into the water. It feels so cool and quiet. Holly, George. Row harder, doctor, cried the steersman of the nearest boat. He's trying to strangle her. The man with the hose. A feeling of elation is like a feeling of alcohol. Under its stimulus, a person may do the most brilliant things, also the most grotesque. It was just this feeling that took hold of Jack Carrington when the senior member of the firm invited him to dine at his apartment on the following evening and meet Mrs. Stockbridge and my daughter. During all the rest of the day, the young college man learning how to work in an office fairly walked on air, and that night in his hall bedroom he went for a sort of dress rehearsal of the role he hoped to play on the great occasion resuscitating and darning his evening clothes to make sure that they looked as well as they did when he led the commencement prom six months before and marshalling all the bon mots he could recollect in order that his supply of extempore witticisms might be adequate still buoyed up by this feeling of elation carrington presented himself next evening at the door of the sumptuous apartment house where the boss lived gave his name to one of the liveried grandees in attendance and was shown up to e four a gorgeous duplex suite half as large as a house and renting for twice as much everything went off splendidly the boss unbent to a surprising degree mrs stockbridge was most cordial and the daughter proved to be a fascinator what is more carrington surpassed himself as a social light he told several funny stories with considerable eclat and inspired by the thrill of the occasion even thought up one or two original ones that surprised him as much as they impressed his hosts when later in the evening he played bridge as the daughter's partner, he had a rush of hearts and aces to his hand. He made slams big and little at such a rate that Miss Duckbridge complimented him upon his skill. Consequently, when, after two victorious rubbers, he bid his hosts good night and noted from their effusiveness that he had made a very favourable impression, it was no wonder that he already pictured himself as a member of the firm and the boss's son-in-law. As the door of the apartment closed behind him, he heaved a sigh of triumph. He felt like shouting or doing something violent. Tingling with pride, he strutted down the hallway toward the elevator. A shining brass fire nozzle, jutting out provokingly from a coil of holes, attracted his attention. It looked so like the head of some absurd animal that he couldn't help poking his finger into its mouth 
as he went by. His finger stuck. Facing the nozzle squarely and taking hold of it with his free left hand, he pulled more carefully. Still, it stuck. The finger was beginning to swell and turn red. He tugged it harder with no result. Concluding that lubrication was necessary, he leaned over and licked it, acquiring a strong brass taste upon his tongue. Then he pulled hard, more swelling. By this time he was in a perspiration of misery. He paused and tried to think clearly, but his mind, which had scintillated all evening, was now a blur. His first lucid thought was that he must unscrew the nozzle from the holes. Why, of course, how simple! But when he tried turning the coupling of the holes, the nozzle insisted on turning with it, and his imprisoned finger was averse to revolving. Lapsing again into ruthful speculation, he tried desperately to devise some means of regaining his liberty. Why not go ring the elevator bell? No, that was around the bend of the corridor, and his tether probably would not reach that far. Besides, it would be awful to have to explain his plight to a livery dignitary like the one who had convoyed him up. And suppose the elevator should arrive full of plutocrats coming home from the opera, or high-strung women who would shriek when they saw him with the fire hose? No, that could never be risked. He must think of something else. A little olive oil would probably do the trick, but how could he get it? If he had thought of that at first and gone right back and asked for it, it wouldn't have been so bad. But now, after nearly half an hour, his hosts were probably in bed. No, it was too late to ring the doorbell now. Suddenly an ingenious idea occurred to him. He would turn on the water and squirt his finger out. Splendid! He reached up and turned the wheel. It made a mournful creaking sound, and the water came to the coil of the hose. Must be shut up downstairs, he thought. Thanks to the incessant sting of his finger and the maddening exasperation of the predicament he was in, Carrington was nearly frantic. Oh, he exclaimed, I'll have to disturb them for that oil sooner or later, so I'd better do it right off. With that, he started for the boss's door, trailing the holes after him. His heart thumped as he rang the bell. Standing in close to the wall, he kept the nozzle behind his back, thinking he'd better to explain before displaying his appendage. There was a sound of slippered feet, and from the opposite direction, a sound of slipping holes. Doors unlocked, and the remainder of the canvas and rubber coil that kept back the water unrolled down upon the floor. "'Who's there?' growled Mr. Stockbridge, arrayed in a bathrobe and squinting out into the dimly lighted corridor without his glasses. Mortification seemed to paralyze Carrington's speech, bringing the nozzle forward abjectly so that Mr. Stockbridge could see his plight, he faltered. "'I—' At that moment his finger shot like a bullet from a gun, and the ensuing stream of water caught Mr. Stockbridge squarely in the throat. Simultaneously, a supreme inspiration came to Carrington. I am a fireman, he cried in a disguised voice. Wake your family at once. Whereupon, as Mr. Stockport rushed back into the apartment, Carrington, dropping the hose, made a thrilling rescue of himself down the stairway and darted into the street before the drowsy dignitary in the vestibule could raise his head. End of part five.